You're listening to episode 46 of the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast. In celebration of our Exoplanet Week for the Kepler Science Conference, we're changing things up a bit and digging into our archives to listen to an older podcast that was recorded way back in 2009, just before the Kepler mission launched. The Kepler Space Telescope mission was to observe one area of the galaxy continuously for a period of four years to identify the presence of planets that are similar to Earth. In this podcast, we have three early Kepler project team members discussing the Kepler mission and its goals. Namely, the Kepler Principal Investigator, William Baruki from NASA Ames, and the Kepler Deputy Principal Investigator, David Koch, who was also from NASA Ames and passed back in 2012. It also includes Kepler Science Council member, Alan Boss, from the Carnegie Institute of Washington. It's an interesting perspective to listen in on a conversation that happened long before the Kepler mission actually confirmed the existence of thousands of exoplanets. So, let's jump into our audio time machine and listen in, starting with the host, Jesse Carpenter. Welcome to everyone, and thank you for joining us. Bill, why don't you start by giving us an overview of what Kepler is? Well, Kepler basically is a space mission where we have a large telescope, a photometer really, that measures the brightness of over 100,000 stars searching for planets around other stars, particularly planets that are Earth-size. And in fact, we'd like to know not only how many Earths are out there, but how many are in the habitable zone of their, of their star? That's the area where there could be water on the surface where life might, might be uh, possible. And so basically the spacecraft uh, looks at these 100,000 stars looking for transits. When the planet moves across the star, the light dims. The amount of dimming tells us about the size of the planet. And how often it repeats tells us the orbital period. And we use the Kepler's third law, which relates how often a planet orbits, what the orbital period is, and the distance from the star. And since we know the temperature of the star from other measurements, we can find out whether it's at the right temperature. It's not too close to the star, so it's too hot, the oceans boil, not too far away where everything is ice. So basically that allows us to find out whether these planets are in the habitable zone and find out how frequent they are. Clearly, if we see that many, many of these stars do have planets, uh, life might be ubiquitous throughout the universe. There may be just waiting for us to say hello. On the other hand, if we find none at all, uh, that might very well mean that uh, things are quite a bit different than expected and uh, that we might be alone in the universe. And I think Alan can address what we've learned so far from the several hundred planets we've found, giant planets, around other stars. Well, as Bill said, Kepler is going to be able to determine how frequently Earths occur, and the expectation from theorists in particular is that uh, Earth should be quite frequent. And that's based on several lines of evidence. The uh, first is that astronomers who study young stars see that essentially all young stars are surrounded by disks of gas and dust uh, formed as part of the same process that forms the star itself. And planets are thought to form out of these uh, disks of gas and dust. And so those uh, disks are quite common, and we expect, uh, therefore, planet formation to be quite common, just from a very basic observational point of view. Second of all, from a theoretical point of view, theorists who study what happens inside those so-called protoplanetary disks find that uh, planet formation is pretty much an inevitable process, at least certainly the formation of planets like the Earth, because the dust that's inside these disks tends to settle down towards a thin plane and become 
so dense that the dust grains start hitting each other and sticking together and growing larger and larger. And over a time period of perhaps a few uh, hundred thousand years, bodies the size of the moon are thought to form, uh, rocky bodies. And then those moon-like bodies take another several hundred million years, perhaps, to manage to find each other and hit and form Earth-like planets. So there's a good chance that essentially every star has an Earth-like planet or something quite similar to it. And so the expectation is that Kepler is going to be finding just oodles of these planets. So, Alan, what are the techniques that are used in the search for planets? The uh, most common method for detecting planets is the so-called Doppler survey, where you look for the radial velocity wobble of a star around its center of mass of a system, implying that you have a planet there, which is then sensed indirectly. Uh, Most of these tend to be gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, rather large planets uh, full of uh, gas with a bit of a rocky, icy core, perhaps. But in addition, uh, other techniques have found uh, even lower and lower mass planets. In particular, the, uh, the microlensing technique has found objects as low in mass as perhaps uh, uh, Neptune or less, or maybe as low as 5 or to 10 times the mass of the Earth. And these objects are out orbiting at a distances that they're quite cold and icy, and they're probably very good analogs to Uranus-Neptune in our solar system. That is, they're sort of like ice giant planets. In addition, the radial velocity folks have been able to improve their precision quite a bit, and they now can get even lower and lower mass objects orbiting in close to their star. And they've been able to find a third class of planets, which might be called the hot super-Earths or the warm super-Earths. These are objects with masses as low as, again, maybe five or ten times the mass of the Earth. They're orbiting closer to their star, and so they're sort of analogous to uh, Mercury and Venus in our solar system, although a bit more massive. So we have now evidence for all three classes of planets within our solar system, basically. Jovian planets, gas giants that is, ice giants like Uranus and Neptune, and probably the tip of the iceberg of the terrestrial planets, the so-called hot and warm super-Earths. So that makes us feel like maybe the solar system is not such an oddball place at all. We've not yet found an Earth-like planet. That's what Kepler is going to do. But the indications are, from what we've seen so far, that Kepler is going to find lots of them. One of the things, of course, is that Kepler is quite a different kind of mission. It's a transit method where we use photometry and Dave Koch is here and he can tell us about the optical systems that are required uh, to use this new method that's especially good at finding small planets. Well, as Bill mentioned, we're looking for transits, and we're looking for sequence of transits, not just a single one. The method then requires us to look at lots of stars, because if you're looking for transits, you don't see them very often. So to look at lots of stars, you have to have a different kind of telescope than your normal astronomical telescope. Hubble and Keck and all the large ground-based telescopes have a very tiny field of view. They're designed to look very deep in our universe at things like galaxies. We need to look at lots of stars, and that requires a special kind of telescope that's called a Schmidt telescope. Our telescope has a 100-square-degree field of view. That's about equal to taking two dips from the Big Dipper on the sky. It's enormous for an astronomical telescope. What we do with that data then is we image it onto an array of CCDs, charged coupled devices. We look at the stars continuously. We add the data up from the stars every 30 minutes and we save that information. And we pick out then only the pixels where we have stars that are appropriate for our studies. About 100,000 stars uh, is what we need. That means we use only about 3% of the pixels. Our our focal plane has 95 mega 
pixels, 95 million pixels, as compared to your, your, your commercial consumer camera that has a few, maybe even up to eight or 10 megapixels. Once we have the data on the ground, we then need to do our data processing to convert that digital information into individual light curves from each of the stars. And then we can start looking for the tiny dips in brightness caused by an Earth. Now the tiny dip is something like one hundredth of one percent. So when we see that dip, that tells us directly the size of the planet we're looking at relative to the star. If we know the size of the star, we then know the size of the planet. The other thing we get directly from the data is the orbital period from the sequence of transits. Using Kepler's third law, we know then the relationship of the orbital period to the distance from the star. If you now know the distance and the luminosity or temperature of the star, you can now calculate the characteristic temperature of the planet. Once you know that, you can determine whether there is liquid water on board. Dave, tell us why the mission was named after Kepler and give us a little background as to who he was. Kepler was a very prominent scientist. Kepler lived 400 years ago. And in fact, the year that we are launching this in 2009 is the 400th anniversary year of Kepler publishing his first two laws of planetary motion. So it's a wonderful coincidence that the mission name that we picked is going to be launched on the 400th anniversary of, of his spectacular work. We might also mention, however, that uh, at first when we were developing the mission, it had a different acronym that basically everybody disliked. It was called FRESIP the frequency of Earth-sized interplanets. And when Carl Sagan was a member of the team, and uh, Jill Tarter from the SETI Institute and Dave Koch uh, finally convinced me that it was a terrible acronym and Kepler was so much better. And I had to admit they were right. So we changed the name of the mission to Kepler from what it used to be when we first started out. Bill, give us a sense of perspective. Tell us how important it is that we conduct this mission. Basically, when you look through the Earth's atmosphere, the atmosphere is full of dust and clouds. There's a day-night cycle, so you can't keep looking continuously, and you don't have anywhere near enough precision to find small planets. So you must, must go out into space to make these measurements. You have to look uninterruptedly for years to make the measurements that we want. And the measurements are important because when we recognize that Kepler will find how often there are Earths, how often there are Earths in habitable zone. That's not the end of our search. It's, a, it's just one step. The next step is to build more uh, capable missions that can look at the atmospheres of these planets and find out are there biological or gases or gases like methane and oxygen, the things that we might associate with life. So Kepler is one necessary step in the series of steps that we will use to find life in our universe. It's important to emphasize that Kepler is really going to be looking for something, Earth-like planets in the habitable zone, that really cannot be done by any other astronomical technique that we have available to us right now. 
ground-based studies can do wonderful things, and other space telescopes like Hubble and Spitzer can do wonderful things, but there's no facility we have available to us now that can do what Kepler can do, which is to find Earth-mass planets orbiting at Earth-like distances. So Kepler really is unique and important and crucial, especially for what NASA will be planning to do after Kepler finds the Earth it's going to find. This mission does not have the capability of telling you whether the planet has life. All we can do is tell you the size of the planet. We cannot even tell you whether the planet has an atmosphere. So one has to be very careful to distinguish what Kepler can do and what future missions might do. This is a mission that basically is very quantitative. What is the fraction of stars that have Earth-sized planets, and what is their distribution of orbits and planet sizes? It does not really look for life. It cannot find life. What we're really looking for is E.T.'s home. When we're looking for habitable planets, there are two principles that are important. One is the size of the planet, and that tells you whether you can have a life-sustaining atmosphere. If the planet is too small, it can't hold on to an atmosphere. If it's too large, it turns into a gas giant, so there's a right size. And the planet has to be the right distance from its star. Too close, it's too hot, you lose an atmosphere, you would lose any water that you could have. Too far away, it's too cold, the water freezes. So there's a right size, a just right size, and a just right distance from the star that we would consider habitable, that is, a place for E.T. to have a home. Basically, Kepler is going to try to count the number of rocky planets around sun-like stars and figure out how many of those rocky planets are conducive to perhaps having water be liquid on their surfaces. That's not the same thing as finding life on them, though we would expect that such planets would eventually evolve some sort of life. But Kepler will just tell us how frequently the abodes for life occur. The summary of what we're doing really is that we're going to be looking for several years to find these planetary orbits because we have to find sets of transits. But certainly in a year or so, we'll find some planets, Earth-sized planets hopefully, around the, the coolest, smallest stars. And in the coming years, certainly by the end of three years, we would expect to find Earth in the habitable zone. And so basically, that's what Kepler is all about. Are there Earths out there? How frequent are there? What kind of stars are they around? We will have an idea whether life is likely to be possible throughout the galaxy, or if we don't find any, that life is going to be very rare in our galaxy. And that's what Kepler's about. I'd like to thank our guests, Bill Baruki, David Koch, and Alan Boss for joining us. I'm Jesse Carpenter, and you've been listening to a podcast from the NASA Ames Research Center. <laughs>